All right, thank you. You guys are free to be seated. My name is Bradley Coleman, and I'm a member of um, Midtown, and it's so good to be with you guys on this rainy, rainy Sunday. Uh, I feel like as you get older, you, you, there's like a, a benchmark to where whenever you look outside and you're just like, man, we needed this. And that's, that's where I was at this morning. And so I'm really, uh, really excited about uh, the storm, and I'm just really excited to be with you guys today as we continue our, our, um, our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Really, with it, when it comes to the Apostles' Creed, this is a summary of our faith. Our, our faith is rooted in an ancient faith. And so when we say that together, we say it as a community, and it both builds us up as a community because it helps look we're, we're reinforcing what we believe in. And this is going to be evident because, uh, you know, I say that we have an ancient faith. It's going to be evident in the, in the text we read today because the, the text that we're going to be reading is from a, a letter that was written 2,000 years ago. And we're still reciting it today together. I think that's really cool. And so, uh, really, when it comes to my message today, it's going to be a continuation of last week's message. So if, if you haven't had a chance uh, to listen to last week's message, I strongly encourage that you do. This, this idea that, that God the Father is the creator of heaven and earth just so flows so elegantly with the next line, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. As Alex points out with this graphic here, um, this displaying that Jesus connects heaven and earth while being fully God, becomes fully man, walks in our shoes, granting us all, as fully men, access to God. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. You can open your apps, too, because we don't live in, you know, 1995. So um, you can open your apps to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, verse 5 through 11. If you look at your Bible, and if you are looking at it through the NIV, you're going to notice that it's, it's, the way it's formatted, it's, it's a little bit different. It's not uh, like just a regular text. It's almost formatted like a psalm. Uh, it's almost like a poem. You see, this nickname for this, um, this passage is the Messiah poem. Not only is this passage profound, but it, this was actually read in the early church. Uh, this was actually one of the first worship songs ever sung in a Christian church. So, I mean, here we are, again, 2,000-some-odd years later, reciting the same passage. And the truths of this poem, they're, they're just timeless, and we can still get a lot from each of the lines written by Paul. A little bit of context. Paul is writing this, this uh, letter of Philippians to, or just the whole letter of Philippians, to the church of Philippi. Again, this is, this is the first church that Paul founds in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, and he's writing this letter while he's in prison. And so this church in Philippi, they send a member of their church to help out Paul and give him, and they bring him a gift. And you see that the letter of Philippians, I feel like it's just way different than his other letter to churches. He's not saying like, hey, you're doing this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong, like in Corinthians. No, it's, it's more of a letter of encouragement and a letter of gratitude for them to bring, you know, they, he, they just brought him a gift. So he's trying to, to encourage them, but also to, to have them change their minds towards each other. You see, this place in Philippi was this Roman colony. Uh, it had tons of retired soldiers, and the town itself was extremely patriotic and extremely nationalistic. 
it's even more extreme than what American patriotism is. Because let's be real, I can go on Facebook and I can post a status saying, Jesus is Lord or Jesus is King, and I'm going to get some likes. You know that, right? The little heart emojis, you know? I might even make a reel on, um, on what is it, uh, Instagram. I can't follow all these different social media. Listen, I, I really sound like a boomer today. Um, but I could even go down to Costco, right down the down the street and start screaming in the aisle, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. And while people may look at me like I'm crazy, uh, they're probably not going to persecute me. They may even bring me samples of the food to help calm me down. Um, whereas if you proclaim Jesus is Lord in this time in the church of Philippi, what you're ultimately saying is that Caesar was not, or Nero was not. And as such, it could result in imprisonment. Example, Paul. Uh, so ultimately, we have Paul trying to encourage the church to begin to change their thinking towards one another uh, because of how important they were to each other, this community of Christ. The church of Philippi, they were important to each other. Midtown church, were important to each other as well. And really, the entire book of Philippians, or this letter, it revolves around this, in, this passage right here, the Messiah poem. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this in mind of your, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I could just walk off the stage right now and just be done, you know? Um, but Paul is saying here that everything after verse 5, the church of Philippi ought to have in their minds towards one another to remember the following. He says in, in verse 6 that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And let's be real, that can be a little bit confusing. So let me break it down. Paul says that though he was in the form of God, and I feel like that word form in the English language, the translation doesn't do it justice. You see, this word form comes from the Greek word morphe. It's like this word morph, but with an E at the end. Uh, you guys probably have seen it in some of our words. I mean, you, you'll see it in the word metamorphosis or morphological or mighty morphin power rangers, you know, triceratops. Um, is that the only one that liked the blue one growing up? I feel like I was the only one. I, everybody else was like team red, team, team uh, uh, was green. Yeah, I was team blue. Let's go. I was the, I was the nerdy one. I like that guy. Uh, anyways, the meaning of the word morphe is actually something that is unchanging. It is something that does not change. It's like the essence of what that thing is, morphe. So, in fact, there's another word that can uh, mean form that is different in the Greek that is not here, and it's called schema. Schema is something that does change. It's like the outward appearance of something. It does change. Uh, Skip Heitzig, he's his pastor at Calvary Church in Albuquerque. He likes into, likens it to like this. Our form or our morphe is that we're all humans, 
It's what we are. It's our essence. And for me personally, my schema would be the countless gray hairs that continue to grow with each year. I don't want to talk about it. Please do not ask. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that the form of God, or form of Jesus, is God. The essence of Jesus is God. He is God completely, not just a little bit. He isn't a demigod or a sub-God. Jesus is completely and utterly God. This point is reiterated in another one of Paul's writings in Colossians 1:15 through 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus has always been and he is God completely. But it continues on saying that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This can be confusing. What this passage is not saying is that Jesus isn't equal to God the Father. But rather, this passage is saying is Christ humbled himself, uh, not telling God the Father, hey, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do, and you're going to listen. No, he, he humbles himself, and he listens to God the Father. This is evident in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, here we have Jesus uh, close to being captured. He's, he's close to being uh, crucified. And he's in this place that literally means, uh, it's nicknamed for where grapes are crushed. Here he is feeling overwhelmed, distraught, overburdened, and crushed. And he pleads to God the Father that he would take the cup away from him or to not have him crucified. But then he says, not my will, but yours be done. And it's really the nature of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, our humble Lord Jesus. The big idea of, of Philippians 2, 5 through 7 is that Jesus, who is fully God, chose to humble himself and bear the pain of being a human for us. Which, interestingly enough, is in direct contrast to the story of creation. In Genesis 3, 2 through 7, And the woman said to the serpent, Eve, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of, the, of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves into loincloths. The irony being here is that Adam and Eve attempt to eat this fruit to become like God. They're trying to bring themselves from down here and try to put themselves on God's level. All of their motivations were all about themselves. They were trying to improve themselves to be on God's level, whereas we have Jesus, he empties himself, takes on the form of a very servant, and then he uh, becomes human, like the lowest of the lows, a servant. Jesus becomes human, because of his love for us. His motives were about others, not self. Completely uh, just reversed compared to what Adam and Eve attempted to do. 
Donald Barnhouse says that love that goes upward is worship, love that goes outward is affection, and love that stoops is grace. Jesus' love stoops as he's being born in the likeness of men. But notice that it also says that Jesus took the form, or morphe, of a servant. It's almost to say that the very essence of our Lord Jesus is both God and servant, which is kind of incredible to think about, right? You would think that as a God or a king or a Lord, being a servant isn't what, something that what you would do, but rather something that you would have. But this is the nature of Jesus. You read scripture and he's just constantly doing the opposite of the norms, opposite of the expected. Heath Adamson says that Jesus doesn't just teach us what to believe, but also how to believe. I want to take the rest of our time today to go over two examples in where we see Christ's servanthood and humility demonstrated in the scriptures. First, let's look at Matthew 13 through 15, really short passage. Uh, Jesus is going to uh, John the Baptist. He's trying to, he's asking John the Baptist to, ha- to baptize him. Uh, Jesus came to the, for, from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. By every account, John was right. If anyone should have been baptizing anyone, it should have been Jesus. Uh, in, in fact, in the book of John, whenever it ta- tells a story, Jesus is baptizing people. And so he comes to John and says, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus invites us all to participate in ministry. John 3.30 says, he must increase, but I must decrease, which really puts in perspective on how often we ought to think of ourselves as our Lord Jesus was constantly humbling himself and serving others. Jesus, our servant Lord, is the ultimate example of what humility looks like. And unfortunately, with the word humility, there's a stereotype that we think it's only when we're critical of ourselves or whenever we put ourselves down. On the contrary, I believe when we put ourselves down, that's the opposite of um, humility, and it's extremely damaging, not only to your spiritual health, but just to your mental health in general. I need you to know that humility isn't being self-deprecating. In fact, I believe being self-deprecating is the opposite of humility because where the focus is, self Humility isn't putting yourself down or making yourself let to be lesser. And while there is value in trying to improve yourself, it's the problem is when we become enthralled by it. C.S. Lewis says that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. This virtue of humility is something that the body of Christ, us, we should all strive for. We don't think of self, rather we think of others so that Jesus may be glorified. Jesus must increase, we must decrease. Skip Heitzig says that humility is a tricky thing because once you think you have it, you lost it. With humility, it's a virtue that we ought to constantly try to obtain while not acknowledging whenever we do. Second example of Christ's humility, it's my favorite example of Christ's humility, as found in Luke 13, 5 through 17. It says, after that, he poured a uh, water into a basin began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. 
He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. He said, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. And continue on, continues on and says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on clothes and returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash another's feet. I have set the example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that I have done these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus' love stoops again as he's physically reaching down, begins to, to clean the feet of his disciples. I love Peter's reaction here because he's like, Jesus, you're Lord. You can't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, no, listen, if, if I don't do this, you have no part with me. And then uh, Peter's like, okay, I'm all in. You know, like, he's like, here we go. I, I actually think that his, his eagerness is pretty admirable. But you look at the gentleness of our Lord Jesus. And it's implied here that Jesus washes every one of the disciples' feet, every single one of them. That probably took a long time, right? It wasn't quick. It took a lot of energy. These are the guys that were walking all over with him, too. And they probably didn't have, you know, any, like, great pairs of shoes. Feet were dirty. I'm sure it wasn't convenient for Jesus to do this. But you see, Jesus knows that Peter, our eager disciple, is going to go on to deny him three times in Jesus' darkest hour, in his most vulnerable time. He knows that Peter is going to go on and do that. Yet Jesus stoops. His love stoops. And he begins to wash the feet of his disciple. Jesus knows that Judas will go on to betray him and ultimately lead to his death on the cross without hesitancy, Jesus' love stoops down and he begins to serve Judas. Jesus doesn't just teach us what to believe, but how to believe. And that is to serve others. No motivation for ourselves, but that God would be glorified. Not only whenever it's convenient, in doing so, we are proudly proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, not with just our words, but also with action. Jesus capitalizes on this, saying that a servant isn't greater than their master, and our master Jesus served. This is what Paul is encouraging this church in Philippi to have in their minds towards one another, to humble themselves and be willing to serve each other, even when it's not convenient. 
Continuing on, uh, Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 8, that Jesus, being a very servant, humbles himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love that Paul emphasizes here, listen, it's not just a death. It's a death on a cross. The, the cross is one of the most humiliating, painful, just excruciating ways to die. You're carrying this, this uh, basically torture apparatus, and you are planting it on this main boulevard so everybody can see you, and you're humiliated. People are spitting on you. All kinds of just uh, insults are thrown, and, and Jesus humbles himself all the way until his, his death. The humility of Christ here is not just whenever uh, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done to God, but it's also in Luke 23, 34, whenever he's begging God the Father for the forgiveness of the sins who are the people who are murdering him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even in his suffering, he still puts out others above himself and intercedes on behalf of those who hate him. His love stoops even while he is in agony. The humility of our Lord Jesus is utterly breathtaking. Paul then goes on and says in his letter in Philippians uh, 2, in the Messiah poem, because of all of this, God the Father exalts Jesus and gives him the name above every name that every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and below earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul ends with a powerful statement. You see, he starts this Messiah poem saying that Jesus is fully God, and he ends the Messiah poem with Jesus is fully Lord, and he is exalted by God the Father, and as such ought to be exalted by us through our actions and our thinking towards one another. That line in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, his only Son, our Lord. An emphasis on that word, our Paul uses that expression oftentimes in his other writings. Uh, our Lord, that three-letter word, our, helps us focus on a unified goal, that Christ be glorified. Charles Spurgeon says, After such an example as that, we ought to be willing to do anything for one another. We should feel as if Jesus, our Lord, constrained us to make any sacrifice and to take the humblest and lowliest place so that we might be of service to anyone else who calls him Lord. And in preparing for this message um, this past like month, I just, just looking at that, that previous quote, looking at the scripture, I, it was really challenging for me. I was looking how I could be a better servant for Christ, and I found that in order to be a better servant for Christ, I had to be a better servant to the people in my life. See, Christ is Lord, and when we serve him, uh, we serve others. Well, this letter that we just went through is exactly how we should have in our minds towards each other. Just like the Church of Philippi should have this in their mind towards each other, I believe Midtown Church should have the same. So how can we be better servants to the church, like, or to, the church to the people in our lives? How can I be a better servant to my wife, my family, how can I humbly stoop around and love on those who are around me? How can we as a church humbly stoop and love to those around us? If I could have the worship team come up. 
You see, we serve others because of the example of Jesus, not for our own interest, but so that God would be glorified. By serving, we show the lordship of Christ. I remember whenever I was in Bible college in Springfield, um, I was really wanting to do something for the community. Uh, Springfield, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it has tons of need. It was winter time, and I remember it being uh, just like a harsher winter than normal. It was extremely cold. And so what I got this idea that I was going to buy some blankets and covers and give them to those who are dealing with homelessness. See, the plan was this. I, I would keep the blankets in my trunk of my car, and I would hand them out to, to homeless um, people uh, who were in need. I remember driving around this curve and going to the end of this intersection. With a, it was a very busy intersection, and there at the end was a man. And he had a sign that said, Homeless, anything will help. And I remember being like, Okay. Here we go. This is what I got these blankets for. We're going we're gonna to change a life, you know? So I found the, the, the closest parking lot, pull in, get the biggest blanket out of the trunk. And I go to this man. I said, hey, sir, can I give you this blanket? And guys, guess what he said to me? Really cool moment. He said, no, I don't need that. I was like, your sign says anything will help. <laughs> Take this blanket. Let me help. And I remember walking away from that interaction just completely defeated. But I think that the reason why I did this whole thing, this the interaction, was really that I wanted to use this man as a testimony of something good that I did. I simply wanted to use him as a story, which ironically I kind of am, but only to point out my failures and not my success. I was attempting to make this man to a testimony so that I could tell people about the good I did. I made this man into a project. And when we make people into projects, we are no longer servants, but rather masters trying to manipulate that person's situation into our own success. This is the opposite of what humility is. No, we serve without condition. We serve when it's not convenient. We only, or when we only serve when it's convenient, it's just not humility because we're putting ourselves first. No, we follow Christ's example. And Christ served his disciples, washing their feet without expectation. No, we serve simply because our Lord is fully God and he became a servant and we are not greater than our Lord Jesus and he served. He must increase and we must decrease. Looking at this church, Philippi, it's kind of cool to think that about how this is a fairly new church. Again, first Christian church in Eastern Europe. And I'd like to think that it's kind of like Midtown. I mean, we're a brand new church here, and we should ought to have the same mind towards each other, to be a servant towards one another, that we would become less and God would become more, that we would serve even when it's not convenient, even when it makes us dirty. And we serve simply because our master did.
And we have plenty of opportunities for you to serve in our church here. Like uh, Agape Pomoja. I don't know if you guys have ever had a chance to be a part of that ministry. It is such a cool ministry. Yeah, you'll get dirty. Yeah, it's hard work. But man, just to be able to uh, be a part of a blessing for a family that's in need, that's exactly what Jesus would want. There's other ministries in, a, in the church that we have that you can be part of too. You're gonna notice that those three tables in the very back, they weren't there last week. It's the first week we're having it. It's just an opportunity for you, if you if after church to go sign up for, for maybe to give up a Sunday a month. Look at the different ministries that we have to offer here and to get involved. There's plenty of opportunity. We're gonna be respectful of your time. We'll be flexible. Even if it's just one Sunday a month that you're willing to give up, we would love to partner with you so that God will be glorified. And it's really fun to do ministry with your, your family and your friends. And lastly, we can learn from this passage that Jesus is Lord and is exalted by God the Father. And as such, ought to be, uh, we ought to do the same. So let me ask you, is Jesus exalted in every area of your life? I know for me, there's areas I can probably improve on. We're human. The idea that we must decrease and God must increase. Begin to think about parts of your life in which God can increase. Is Jesus Lord and do we serve him? You see, to serve Jesus is to serve others. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you. We thank you. Uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his this uh, display of what being a servant is. God, right now, I pray that in our daily life, we would continue to decrease. God, that you would continue to increase in our life. Lord, may our, our words also be action. Guys, pray that you would continue to provide opportunities for us to serve and that you would be glorified in all things. I give you praise in Jesus' name. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.